Section 8 of The Mystery of the Ocean Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Jones. The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell. Section 8 The Old Sea Dog. There is a story, not very widely known, of the famous old Admiral Van Tromp. He was a big, heavy man, and was challenged by a French officer, a thin, active little fellow, to fight a duel. "'We are not upon equal terms with the rapier,' said Tromp. "'But call on me to-morrow, and I have no doubt we shall be able to adjust matters.' The Frenchman called, and found the Dutch Admiral bestriding a barrel of gunpowder. "'There is room enough for both,' said Tromp pointing to the other end of the barrel. Sit down, here's a match, and as you are the challenger, give fire. The Frenchman was thunderstruck by this terrible mode of dueling, but as the Dutchman said he would fight in no other way, the combat was abandoned. There was never a completer sea-dog than old Trump, as they used to call him, and the above story is extremely characteristic of the race to which he belonged. I cannot help thinking, however, that the mariner of the old school has been described to us with features very greatly exaggerated. Down to quite recent times it was held imperative that the sailor should be represented as a man with a large, fiery, bottle-shaped nose, little bloodshot eyes driven deep into their holes by the gales of wind they had stared into, a capacious mouth stretching from ear to ear, a face embellished by those peculiar forecastle growths termed grog blossoms, a cheek distended by a large junk of tobacco, the whole improved by an expression of tipsy hilarity. The caricaturists never spared the sailor. Particularly in George Cruikshank's hand did he fare ill. The drunken seamen of Cruikshank are very drunk indeed, and his virtuous jacks are made diabolical by their ugliness. Cruikshank's pigtails, too, are as thick as the shrouds of a line of battleship, and his wooden legs have something of the inexpressible quality of the little tail which curled so tightly that the dog it belonged to couldn't keep his hind legs down. No doubt the old sea-dog had an existence, but it is difficult to find any correspondence between the image of him that our imagination possesses and such true and faithful portraits of him as are preserved. There are assuredly no trunnions in the galleries of England's seaworthies. Lord Nelson's face is full of refinement, tenderness in the expression round about the mouth, and a pensiveness of gaze as one seems to find it in his picture of Abbott. Drake had a sweet, noble, cultivated, and commanding face. There is perhaps something heavy and phlegmatic along with the Judaic twist of liniments in the countenance of Lord St. Vincent. But the brave, resolved English countenance falls very far short indeed of such idealisms as Smollett and other sea novelists have inspired. In Duncan's large, eager intellectual eyes and cast of face that reminds one of Dean Swift's, there is no hint of pipes or hatchway. Admiral Barrington looks like a judge in Copley's picture. Sir Sidney Smith has an almost effeminate delicacy of features. Northcote's Lord Graves has chins enough to furnish out an alderman, but the inspirations of the rum puncheon may be sought for in vain in this honorable, sturdy old visage. The face of Samares is full of refinement and breeding, 
Sir Roger Curtis completely answers to Hazlitt's definition of the gentleman by appearance. Boscawen, in Renaud's picture, looks at you with noble eyes and a sort of wistfulness never to be encountered in one's fancies of the old sea-dog. Keppel comes somewhat near to the conception of the bull-headed seaman, but this is the face of a great mind, and there is no art in caricature to vulgarize such lineaments. I could go on referring to Kempenfelt, who went down in the Royal George, to the singularly handsome face of Lord Hawk, to the hard, shrewd, dried-up, open-eyed, heavy-nosed countenance of Sir Charles Saunders, to Lord Gardiner's clear-cut profile, to the portraits of Pocock, of Captain James Cook, with his rugged, penetrating, scowling look, of the fat and smiling Admiral Hughes, of the noble Vernon, with his thick eyebrows and hawk's bill nose, of Rook, of Lord Keith, of Harvey, of Tyrrell, of Nugent, and a hundred others of the braves of olden times. They were all sea-dogs, and old sea-dogs. How in the face of the portraits of these worthies, who are physically entirely representative of the old race of sailors, posterity can go on accepting Trunnion as a strictly accurate type, it is difficult to understand. The old sea-dog was a gentleman who swore rather freely, but it may be questioned whether in other respects he differs very much from later generations of sailors. He was, perhaps, a rougher seaman than the man who is fortunate enough to flourish in the days of steam. His accommodation on board ship was not very good, his food was exceedingly indigestible, and as we all know the very large part the stomach plays in the economy of the human temper, possibly not a little of the bad language of the old sea-dog may be attributed to pea-soup and salt junk. His ship was incessantly fighting other nations' ships and there is a quality in gunpowder smoke that has a very sobering influence on sentiment. He lived very close to death. He was frequently seeing his shipmates and intimate associates shot down by his side, and spectacles of this kind do not tend to the refinement of human nature. Besides, he was himself often wounded and losing an eye, or a leg, or an arm. Falconer, in his Miscellanies, includes a poem which he calls The Midshipman. It is the sketch of the depths of a man-of-war about a hundred and thirty years ago. The mid is to dine with the captain, and the poet sketches him at his toilet thus. To him Japan her varnished joys denies, nor bloom for him the sweets of eastern skies. His rugged limbs no lofty mirror shows, nor tender couch invites him to repose. A pygmy glass upon his toilet stands, Cracked o'er and o'er by awkward, clumsy hands. Chesterfield's page, polite, the seaman's guide. An aft-eat biscuit, Congreve's morning bride. Bestrewed with powder, in confusion lie, And form a chaos to the intruding eye. At length this meteor of an hour is dressed, And rises an Adonis from his chest. Out of such gloomy caverns as this Sprang the noble race of Britannia's sea-warriors. It is not wonderful that the old sea-dog should have been lacking in something of the refinement and graces of manner which distinguished his successors. Yet I think we ought to protest against the theory that he was the compound of rum, oaths, and ugliness which posterity is prone to consider him. It is sailors, however, who have helped on the notion. Literature and the sea 
have this in common, that whatever is ridiculous in the callings and held in contempt is due to the descriptions of the man of letters and of the mariner. Soldiers, engineers, lawyers, farmers, architects, clergymen, schoolmasters do not write books, holding up their particular callings to scorn by exaggerating the features of the vocation. But authors have never spared one another, and if we hear no more of men of letters sleeping two in a bed or writing with their arms thrust through a blanket whilst their only shirt was at wash, it is, perhaps, because the literary man is now able to have a bed to himself and to possess shirts enough to count. The ludicrous and somewhat dishonoring figure of the old sea-dog is a sketch in black and white by the old sea-dog himself. Smollett, though he served in the cockpit, was long enough at sea to know the sailor's life and to become a sailor, and his drawings have been accepted as models. I should think they are about as near to the truth as Cruikshank's caricatures. Marriott made much of the traditions originated by the admirable author of Roderick Random. Michael Scott goes further yet, and in Lieutenant Sprawl presents us with a scarecrow by whose side the boatswain, Mr. Chucks, is fit to move in what Winifred Jenkins would have called the quintessence of satiety. As though the measure of Jack's sufferings were not overflowing, Douglas Gerald must needs, out of his memory of the brief days he had passed at sea, generate the William of Black-Eyed Susan. I return to Trunnion. He is the typical mariner of the novel, and in proportion as succeeding artists have caught the colors and graces of this extraordinary presentment, so have their endeavors been deemed successful and their strokes commended. More than one retired naval sea captain in fiction has mounted guns upon his lawn and fired them off whenever occasion demanded, and it is not hard to perceive where these old sea-dogs found the notion. Trunnion lodged himself in a house surrounded by a ditch over which was a drawbridge and filled his courtyard with swivel guns called patareros, which were always kept loaded with shot under the direction of Lieutenant Hatchway, who had lost a leg whilst serving as first lieutenant on board the Commodore's ship. His head servant, as every reader of Smollett knows, was Tom Pipes, who had been his boatswain's mate, and whose chief business seems to have been to regale his master's ear with the dulcet notes of the boatswain's whistle. It is easily conceived that a course of trunnion, hatchway, and pipes would persuade the landsman that your true tar is not only a man who swears consumedly, but who borrows nearly the whole of his vocabulary from the language of the sea. It is unhappily difficult to find any speech that Smollett has put into the mouths of these three sailors which will bear quoting but surely it is inconceivable that the most nautical of the old sea-dogs could have been so violently professional in their jargon as were Trunnion and his two associates. "'Hatchway!' cries the Commodore, whose language must be omitted. "'I always took you to be a better seaman than to overset our chaise in such fair weather. "'Blood! Didn't I tell you we were running bump ashore and bid you set in the lee-brace and haul upon a wind?' Yes, replied the other, with an arch sneer, I do confess as how you did give such orders after you had run us foul of a post, so as the carriage lay along and could not right herself. I run you a foul of a post, cried the commander. You're a pretty dog, ain't you, to tell me so above board to my face? Did I take charge of the chase? Did I stand at the helm? And so they go on. It is excellent fooling. There is no richer humor in English literature. 
and if sailors ever did talk at any time of british maritime history in the fashion small it would have us believe one could wish them to speak as he makes them but i cannot persuade myself that the vernons the hawks the rooks the monsons the mansells the howes the jarvises that these and such men and the famous and valiant commodores captains and lieutenants who fought under them were as trunnion and as hatchway leaving pipes to represent the forecastle smollett's commodore is an exquisite libel upon jack and the country has believed in it as truth for generations there is hardly less humour in this than in the portrait itself the profession of the sea is represented by many noble families in this kingdom and it would be interesting to know their opinion of a theory which establishes their progenitors as stout and valiant hearts cased in frames covered with spiritous pimples whose mouths are crammed with profanity and extraordinary references to spritsail yards lee braces hencoops and sheet anchors there is another delightful prototype in the shape of tom bowling in roderick random probably smollett exaggerates the costume as he does the dialect if not the old sea-dog must have gone queerly clad when lieutenant bowling is met by roderick the dress of this naval officer consisted of a soldier's coat that had been altered by the ship's tailor a striped flannel jacket a pair of red breeches japanned with pitch grey worsted stockings large silver buckles a silver laced hat a black bob wig and buckle a check shirt a silk handkerchief a hanger and an oak plant under his arm it was in this costume that lieutenant bolin took roderick to see his dying grandfather who was surrounded with weeping relations captain oakham is another astonishing example of the old sea-dog in fiction but the oddest of all these wonderful old fellows is captain crow who is so fascinated by the armor and adventures of sir lancelot greaves that he commences knight-errant on his own account smollett might have spared the sailor this stroke perhaps he conceived that the jest would not pass with the royal navy and so he dubs crow a merchantman merchant captains have made fools of themselves in all ages but it is difficult to conceive a skipper posture-making as don quixote delivering damsels in distress and being charged before magistrates as a highwayman the example however was too strong smollett had set up his standard the world accepted it and succeeding novelists confirmed it by cutting and trimming to its pattern let us take a glance at another commodore and at his companion both old sea-dogs in the purest sense of the traditionary nature of that character he is to start with a gallant old fellow and is dressed in faded nankeen trousers discolored cotton stockings shoes with corn holes cut in the toes an ill-washed and rumpled white waistcoat an old threadbare blue uniform coat white and soapy at the seams and elbow a dingy brown silk neckcloth and an old white beaver with very broad brim the snout of it fastened back to the crown with a lanyard of common spun yarn this is commodore oakplank and stands for a picture of a sea-dog from seventeen eighty to about eighteen twenty his companion is lieutenant sprawl this gentleman wears a very little hat with scarcely any brim the remains of the nap bleached by a burning sun and splashed with spray but garnished ne'ertheless with a double stripe of fresh gold lace and a naval button on the left side 
Add to this an old-fashioned uniform coat, long-waisted with very short skirts, a dingy white waistcoat, a great horn eyeglass, ancient duck trousers extending about halfway down the calf of the leg, leaving his pillar-like ankles conspicuously observable. Such are two of Michael Scott's portraitures. He gives old Sprawl a nickname that Smollett would have relished, but neither of these gentlemen talks as his progenitors in fiction talked fifty years before. The sea-dog was mending his manners, and yet, coarse and dishonoring, however humorous, as are the Trunnions, Oakums, Hatchways, and the like, better surely the most rampant and hectoring amongst them all than such a character as William in Black-Eyed Susan. To represent the typical sailor as a drunken, brutal, blaspheming son of a swab is not indeed extremely complimentary to the two services at large. But if the character of the true salt is ever seriously traduced, it is by the dramatic virtuous sailor. I would sooner bear with Trunnion in his maddest tantrums for a fortnight than endure ten minutes of sweet William. Ah, he says, if my Susan knew who was here should soon lash and carry, roused up by the whistle of that young boatswain's mate, Cupid piping in her heart. And then he goes on, may my pockets be scuttled if I didn't think so. His bills above ship, the law. She's neither privateer, bombship, nor letter of mark. She's built of green timber, manned with loploloy boys and marines, provisioned with moldy biscuit and bilge water, and fires nothing but red-hot shot. There's no grappling with or boarding her. She always sails best in a storm and founders in fair weather. I'd sooner be sent adrift in the North Sea in a butter cask with a back-a-box for my storeroom than sail in that devil's craft, the law. My young grampus, I should like to have the mast-heading of you in a stiff nor'wester. Of all forms of nauticalism, this is the most disastrous. It is inconceivable that such fustian should ever have been produced in and admiringly received by so great a maritime nation as this. If we are to believe in a sham, let us stick to the best specimens and hold by Trunnion and Bowling. Seeing, however, what the old sea-dog has done for us and for our country, it is but right, I think, that we should endeavor to cleanse him of something of these impurities of pigment which the caricaturist has troweled upon his canvas. Why people decline to believe that the old race of sea-dogs could not have been gentlemen simply because they were sailors is not intelligible unless you make the odd, arch-humor of Smollett responsible for the tradition. For my part, whilst I freely acknowledge them to have drunk freely and sworn tempestuously, I must take leave to consider them to have been the finest race of gentlemen, in the sense of the word whose definition admits of every fine and manly quality short of polish, that this country has ever produced. End of section 8